Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, gorgeous people, and welcome to the Yes Means Yes show, where the personal and the political get intimate. I'm your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and every other week I'm joined by a smart and provocative guest to discuss sex, sexuality, and or sex-related current events. And then we put our principles into practice with a real-world advice question. And I am so excited this week to bring you, at long last, Rachel Hills. We've been trying to make this schedule work for a long time. Rachel's a journalist, and she's the author of a really great new book called The Sex Myth. The Gap Between Our Fantasies and Reality, which is what she is here to talk with us about. Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jacqueline. How are you holding up on the book tour? <laughs> uh, pretty good. I have a week and a half back home at the moment, so I think I have that long. Maybe it's only a week. Uh, but, but yeah, it's all been going well. Lots of travel, lots of meeting people. Excellent. And have people been really excited to talk about how their lives are not like the movies? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I've been getting a ton of really interesting emails from people as well. Oh, I bet you have. Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. I feel like I've gotten already cart before the horse. Why don't you yeah. set up the book for the the... For my listeners, I know that it starts from a personal place with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I started working on the ideas in the sex myth back in about 2007, which was, I guess, a time of kind of peak hookup cult, hookup culture panic um, in the United States, obviously, but also in Australia where I was living at the time. So this dominant story was that young people were going at it constantly and that this was a terrible kind of moral crisis but that it was also kind of titillating and that people wanted to talk about it constantly. Um, and this was very much not what my life looked like at the time, even though in other respects I kind of fit the model of the kind of person who should be hooking up. I was young, I was liberal, I lived in a city, I, was, I hoped I was somewhat attractive, although I definitely had fears that I wasn't. And I felt really bad about the fact that my life didn't match up to the story that I was hearing about how sex was. And then I guess implicitly, even though it was a critical story, how sex should be. 
And it was a realization that I wasn't alone in firstly feeling different to that story, but in secondly, in the sense of feeling different and I guess somewhat ashamed of my sex life in general that made me want to start investigating these stories that were told about sex and where they come from and how they impact people, which is what the book is about. And so then I, from the introduction, you say, you know, so you started by just putting together this survey that you circulated among friends because mm-hmm. you wanted to get a sense of like, what, what are my, what is everybody really doing? And that kind of snowballed for you? Yeah. So my reason for doing that article that I did the survey for in the first place was uh, when I was in, when I was 24, I was walking home from a party one night with a friend uh, who I've, who I've since dedicated the book to because she was really my reason for writing it. And um, she was uh, this really wonderful and still is this wonderful, admirable young woman. Uh, she was she was so vibrant. She was intelligent. She made these great scenes. She was always up for an adventure. And as we were walking home from the party, she told me that she hadn't had sex in two years. Um, she just said it like this bold declaration. And I was really surprised by that because she didn't she she totally fit the image of someone that we think of as being sexually active in our culture and she definitely did not fit the image of someone that we would not think of as being sexually active but the real i guess the realization that if she was going through if that was her experience and it was also somewhat close to my experience that perhaps other people's experiences didn't look like this constant kind of non-stop tap of sex which uh, which is kind of perpetuated in our culture. So, yeah, I was inspired by her to originally write an article about it for a literary magazine. And because that was quite a small-scale project, I decided to do that investigation by distributing a survey amongst my friends and acquaintances, uh, partly to get some kind of quantitative facts at least amongst that circle about what people were doing um who how many people they were sleeping with under what kinds of circumstances as well but also i guess to understand the stories that surrounded that so people's reasons and how they felt about it and what'd you find um well i found perhaps unsurprisingly to your listeners (laughs) a huge amount of variety really Uh, yeah so there were some people who were having quite a lot of sex, whether that was in a relationship or not. Um, and then there were others who were having hardly any sex, again, whether that was in a relationship or not. But I think the thing that really that kind of gave me the inspiration to turn that initial investigation into a much longer one, since obviously that was happening in 2007 and it's now 2015, was the fact that as I was working on this story, absolutely everyone I know suddenly wanted to talk to me about the sex lines. Um, Because as you know, as a journalist, if you're working on something, it's what you talk about with your friends. And um, I realized that, as I said, even though most of my friends' sex lives looked quite different to mine at the time, because we're all different to one another, many of them shared this sense of disquiet that when it came to sex, they were doing the wrong thing. 
whether that was fears about their own desirability with a partner, um, difficulty, physical difficulty, having the type of sex that we're told that that straight women in particular should be having, mm-hmm. i.e. they didn't necessarily like penetrative sex, uh, the idea that sex wasn't as pleasurable for them as they wanted it to be, or a fear that they were having too much sex. And I, I was like, okay, this is this is clearly an actual important conversation that I that I could contribute to. And it seemed like something that was really worthy of turning into a book. Which it was. I mean, one of the things I loved about getting this book in my hands, it was like, I talk to young people about this stuff a lot and, and not so young people. And, you know, both in the focus group that that I ran when I developed my book, What You Really, Really Want, and also when I visit campuses, I don't meet anybody who doesn't feel like they're wrong and broken when it comes to sex. And it really is sometimes startling. You, You talk to people who you think, you know, oh, they must have it so together. And But every single person has a reason that they feel like they are doing it wrong or they can never have the kind of sex they want or, um, you know, so many people, like the vast majority of us feel alienated from our sexuality. Um, and so seeing the the way you lay that out and sort of the breadth of your research underpinning that, it's just honestly so refreshing to just talk about that. Thank you. And it's really unfortunate that so many people feel that way, isn't it? It is. It's sad. I mean, like, literally, I just want to hug everyone and tell them they're okay. (laughs) Yeah, I felt that way while I was doing a couple of my interviews as well. In fact, I remember during one of my interviews, there was a young man I spoke to who seemed so emotionally crushed by his sex life that I, or lack thereof, as the case was at the time, that I remember saying to him during the interview, I said, I just want to give you a hug right now. And um, he said he didn't think that would be very professional. So I didn't. (laughs) Well, people have boundaries and we must respect them. Well, I didn't like literally want to foist myself onto him in a hug, but I, I felt an incredible empathy for him and I wished that there was something I could do to help. And I think one of, one of the ideas that really stood out for me in your book was talking about the idea, uh, the sort of Foucauldian, we don't have to get into the sort of highfalutin philosophical yeah. stuff, but, it, you know, idea of subjectification, of, of how the idea we have about ourselves, the way, the way we identify ourselves with our sex lives or the sex lives we think we should be having um, when that's in dissonance with our actual reality, how much discomfort that causes. Can you talk a little bit about that part? Yeah, I think that's something that really gets to the root of the book, and which in a way is is my attempt to answer that question that that I feel like you raised before. Maybe it's a question that I raised in response to, in my head in response to what you said, which was the sense that there are so many people out there who are feeling shame and disquiet around their sex lives. And my project in working on the book wasn't just to 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 research and articulate that or to understand what the messages people were hearing were. What I really wanted to understand is, well, why is sex such a source of shame in our culture? Why is it that in this particular arena of our lives, not living up to these ideas of what is normal or what is ideal or what is desirable seems to hurt us so much. And um, that's what the title of my book, The Sex Myth, refers to. It refers to this kind of huge weight that's is given in our culture this idea that 
how how often or with whom we have sex is this defining thing that determines our attractiveness how well our relationship is going whether we're morally upstanding um, whether we're modern and enlightened whether we're straight or gay whether we're grown-ups or whether we're immature and my argument is that it's this weight that we attach to sex which is used to regulate it in our culture more so than well, as much as, or maybe more so, than any kind of individual set of regulations. So more so than just the idea that you should not do it, which of course has been quite dominant in recent history and still very much exists in American society and elsewhere, but also concurrently the idea that you should be doing it. And um, that very Foucauldian idea of subjectification is kind of at the centre of that. It's the idea that if you believe that your sex life defines you, you're going to be a lot more invested in trying to control your sexuality. So maybe we should talk before I ask you how we get here about specifically how everyone thinks that everyone else is having more sex than them. (laughs) So specifically, the sex myth is both about that sort of that idealization, but that the the current ideal is kind of this idea of liberation, but it's liberation only through lots and lots of sex in this particular way. Can you talk about that part and then like talk us through how we got here? Sure. That's a big and complicated question. Um, Just tell me the whole book. (laughs) um i mean it's interesting and i'd actually really love to hear your take on that as somebody who works within as someone who's a fellow kind of sex positive feminist oh i have thoughts yes yeah i bet you do and i I, because i know my thoughts i feel like yours would be more interesting for me to hear um so what was your question what what is this ideal of somebody having a lot of sex and well that that, come that, from? The, or, that for a long time that other think, people are having it right that that so many of us and i know specifically that there's research on in college students that yeah and i and whenever i do an orientation especially i'm like look if you want to hook up there's actually nothing wrong with that as long as you're doing it ethically and the other person you're hooking up with also wants to hook up. But yeah, absolutely. also you should know that most of us, most of you are not going to do it that much, right? Like, yeah. it's fine if you do, but like, don't imagine, as I know all of you do, because the research says all of you do, that you're all just doing it all the time because you're not. Um, yeah. It's like a reversal of what until re- in recent history was the sex myth, which is, you know, like good, mm-hmm. good people don't, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's partly where it stems from. And I think it stems from the fact that those two ideals are both still very much well and alive, um, particularly when we're really young. So when we're in high school, I think, before we, before we go on to college or university or, you know, job adult life, um, I think that teenagers are still very much taught that to be sexually active teenage girls in particular, are still very much taught that to be sexually active is not an ideal. And then an ideal, whether even if it's not waiting until marriage, that perhaps it's ideal to wait until you meet someone who you really, really love. Um, or that... Or that it should be special and meaningful. That it should be special. And that I think particularly within kind of heterosexual encounters, it's it's kind of set up as being pretty combative, really. Um, even if not literally physically, I, I talk about a little bit about this in the book, but I remember the teen magazines I read, they were all about kind of psychologically giving us the armory to um, 
to resist the pressure to have sex from from guys. So there's this idea that, you know, you, as the phrase goes, that you're giving it up mm-hmm. if you have sex. And I think that that is obviously a very sex-negative environment that people are coming into. So I think the idea then that to be sexually active is freedom um, kind of emerges in resistance to that. And in some respects, it's quite a logical form of resistance. If you're told, if you're brought up being told that sex is bad or sex is dangerous and that that's something and that idea is something that hurts you and it does hurt a lot of people, there's a kind of logic to the idea that if you turn that thing that's bad on its head and and make it its opposite, so i.e., if saying sex is bad is bad, then saying sex is good is good, um, then that would be a form of freedom. So I think that that's part of it. But I think that's so reactive. I mean, I think there, that's why it goes wrong is because it it's almost like, you know, somebody being like, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do or like. You know, back when I used to diet, which I also don't recommend because it doesn't Mm -hmm. work, um, you know, if there was like some food I wasn't supposed to eat, like I wouldn't eat it for five days and then I'd be like, ah, I will assert my independence by eating all of the thing. Um, And that never was very satisfying either. Right. Um, That that it's sort of not a it doesn't actually undermine the underlying assumptions or the underlying idea of, for example, sex is that sort of adversarial interaction it doesn't undermine the underlying structural oppressions and i don't know fucked up in i'm not feeling that articulate um the things that are that are twisted in the sexual culture just flipping it on its head you know you told me you know what i think i think that that I think you're exactly right. Like, I think that that impulse comes from like, oh, you can't tell me not to have sex. I'll have all the sex. Yeah. Um, but it but saying that is not actually transforming the circumstances that are making us feel alienated from our actual sexuality. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad. I'm glad we agree. Yes. Um, <laughs> although it would be fine if we disagreed too. Um, and, and basically what you said is something that I've been talking about a lot as I go around the U.S. and Canada talking to people about the book. Um, when I go into kind of speechifying mode rather than in conversation mode or reading mode, I'm, I make the point that I feel like in our kind of mainstream idea of what sexual freedom is, we've, we've created something that's very reactive. We've just taken what we don't like and try what we don't like and tried to invert it into something we like instead but I say well what if we were to create um, a vision of sexual freedom which isn't in response to what we don't like but it's actually laying out what we do want instead which I guess ties into your book title yes exactly I mean it's we're, we're working on the same project from slightly different angles yeah yeah um, but in terms of the roots of that, I mean, I don't think it's entirely down to a kind of misplaced idea of what it is to be progressive or a misplaced idea of what it is to be liberal. I think that there are um, obviously strong commercial elements pushing ideas about how our sex lives are supposed to be as well. So when when I was in the stage of my life, which is, I guess, the place I'm writing to in the book, if not writing from, um, when I was in that late teens early 20s stage I didn't feel bad about my sex life because I felt like I wasn't a good enough feminist um that wasn't really on my radar at the time well feminism was but the idea of proving my feminism through sex definitely was not but I did get this idea that sex was ubiquitous 
through popular culture, so through the uh, through the TV shows I watched or um, through the magazines I read. There's just this sense of kind of omnipresence of sexuality, which I think contributes to this, which I think not just contributes to, it probably largely shapes the idea that everybody is doing it constantly. And then it's something that we then, then, then kind of trickles down and that we echo into our own lives and conversations. So even if we don't try to emulate that in what we do, it's often the picture that people will paint about themselves in the stories we tell about what we do. And you tell some, you know, I, I think it's in the toward the end of your book. You talk about slipping into that yourself sometimes, even yeah. now. Yeah, I do, and I I see myself doing it even now after the book is out. Sometimes when I'm out, um, you know, chatting to even wonderful sex positive colleagues, and we'll be talking about sexual politics, and I will notice myself saying things that aren't untrue, but which, but which somehow kind of suggest that my history has been slightly different to what it was even though I'm now enough out on the record publicly that anyone who knows me well could figure it out if they wanted to (laughs) I mean it's true and I have those same conversations you know you go to conferences with sexuality professionals and people assume you want to go to the play party right and um and that you know, telling people that you're monogamous, that you get like these weird hairy looks. And I'm like, look, my politics are my politics. It doesn't mean, you know, what I always like to say is like, there's no one decision you can make that's going to make you inherently sexually liberated. Exactly. It, yeah. It's about being free to make that choice. Um, as much as we can be free to make yeah, any well, choice Well, sure. Yes. But what is say, what is freedom? Yeah. I will say actually that I found that often sexuality professionals can be some of the best people to talk about this stuff with which is interesting because I think that can almost become a stereotype of sex positivity in and of itself um, that in order to be sex positive you have to be doing these things and I think that is a stereotype that exists within the mainstream and that even exists within feminism but I remember and you, you probably you may have been to Catalyst Con the sex positive conference that, yeah I was um, Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. There a few a couple, years ago. A couple of times a year. So I went 
for the first time this year in Washington, D.C., and I found it to be, and, you know, it's the kind of place that's famous for those kinds of play parties. Um, and, you know, they do happen. But I also found it to be one of the most freeing, non-judgmental environments I've ever been in. I went into it thinking, because clearly I still have hang-ups, I went into it thinking, oh, everybody here's going to think I'm a total prude, um, so embarrassing. But I found that Everybody there was totally, well, everyone I met was totally non-judgmental, totally wanting to create an environment of sexual freedom in which people were able to express themselves sexually in whatever way worked for them and not have to do whatever doesn't work for them. And so I found that really surprising, even though perhaps it shouldn't have been, and really, really refreshing. That's wonderful. So I want to, I feel like we've talked about a lot of ideas, Mm -hmm. but one of the things I think is so wonderful about the book is that you really tell people's stories and it it's, it brings the ideas home in a very different way. Can you tell me a couple of your favorite stories from the book? What are the ones that you wind up thinking about over and over again? Um, the one I think about the most is the guy who I offered the hug to. Who turned oh. down. Um, not because of him turning down the hug, but because I feel like he went through this kind of fantastic transformation between the time that I first interviewed him and the book was published. So he's a guy called Henry, and I think he first appears in chapter four of the book, which is my chapter on desire and desirability. And when I met him, he was 23 and he was a virgin and he felt really terrible about that. He felt like he was falling behind his friends and that he was undesirable and this kind of insecurity kind of pervaded him. Um, And obviously I wanted to give him a hug. Um, (laughs) And he was was so insecure about where he was at his life at that point that even though he'd gone to great lengths to be interviewed by me, he spent more than an hour on a train coming to see me. A couple of months after we spoke, he emailed me and he asked to be removed from the book. Not so much because he was embarrassed about admitting that he was a virgin, but because he felt like talking to me about sex in the first place suggested that he thought that he might someday have sex, like that he thought that he might be worthy of sex. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And And he's like, look, I'm 23. Maybe he was 24 by that point. I haven't done it. Clearly, it's never going to happen for me. Um. And so I, I left it be for a while and just before I was submitting the first draft of the book, I got in touch with him again because I really wanted to use his story. And um, I said, hey, can I use your story? I think it's really important for people to hear. And he said, hey, yep, thanks for getting in touch. Actually, I had sex the other day. Wow. And um, now that I've had sex, I realize that it was not this big deal than I thought it was and that I am not, in fact, defective. <laughs> Um, and I think I got in touch with him a little while again after that. Maybe I was checking some quotes. This book went through many drafts. And, um, he told me that at that point he'd gotten really into BDSM and that he was known within his local community for his expertise in Japanese bondage. And so I just thought it's, it's fascinating that I spoke to him at three times in his life, you know, all within the space of about 18 months or two years where he was at such different points. And it's a really special story to me in part because this weight that he was carrying around was lifted off his shoulders, but also because it, it kind of goes against this idea that how we have sex is this authentic expression of who we are or that it defines us. Or that because it's here permanent is this one person. in any kind of way. Exactly, right. exactly. or that it's permanent because here is this one person 
who was, in terms of the stories that we tell about people and sex, kind of three different people within the space of um, a few years. And while that's probably one of the stronger examples of that, that was really common to many of the people that I interviewed. And indeed also it also applies to myself through the process of writing the book and to my friend Monica, to whom the book is dedicated. She's had many different types of sex and relationship lives in the time that it took me to write the book. I love the part where he says, you know, that I had sex and then I realized it was not such a big deal because I, I relate to that so much. I had sex pretty early. I was 15. Um, but I remember feeling like it, like it was a big deal in some ways, but also like, like, it didn't make sense to me what a big deal it was. Like, I was like, well, I know I used to be a virgin. Now what am I? And yeah. just having this sort of – I was just mystified by, like, how different I was supposed to feel. Um, and, and you know, I had – it was a pretty good experience. And I was with somebody who I continued to have sex with for a while. But um, it wasn't – it didn't change who I was. But it was very – I don't think I could have articulated that way when I was that age. Yeah. And I think that becoming sexual can be a really profound experience. And it was for me when I look back on it. But I don't think that it was the act of quote unquote having sex or having penetrative intercourse. Right. Like that was not a transformative act. It was more all the things that I didn't learn before I had penetrative intercourse. Like that was a steep learning curve. The act of then doing that one thing. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I actually, I guess, became sexually active years before I thought I did. Right, exactly. <laughs> but nobody told you. Yeah. Um, so you've been out touring with the book, which is mm -hmm. so exciting. I'm wondering what are the questions you're getting on the road that most intrigue or, or surprise you? It's a really great question. And for some reason, my mind is drawing a blank. Um, what are the I, what are the questions that intrigue or surprise me? I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. What I, are the comments I think or responses the questions that yeah. offend me instead. All right. What are the questions um, that have been offended? What are the most offensive things you've been asked on your book tour? Actually, offend is probably the wrong word. Okay. I think of the questions that frustrate me, which is which is more when people who perhaps the book is not written for come along to a, the event, which is kind of awesome. But I remember that they come, but then the questions that they ask perhaps are not so helpful. Um, so some of the more frustrating questions I've received was I remember there was one event where a guy just, he, he kept telling me that he really wanted to learn something from my event. And while I told him all these facts and figures, he wanted to know what I had learned. Um, and I felt like basically I was being interrogated on my own sex life. And um, I did reveal quite a bit. I'd, I, I revealed the things that I had learned emotionally through doing the book, which was the sense that I was not defined so much by my sex life. And that if that was not the case, then to kind of get a bit Foucault on you, that would make me potentially free to do all sorts of other things when it came. It's like I, I did not have to, you know, for example, I don't identify as straight anymore the way that I used to. Um, which doesn't necessarily mean that I engage in non-straight practices at this point in my life, but I think that identifying a straight kind of says this is th these are the only people I'm ever going to be romantically or sexually interested in, and on reflection, that doesn't seem like such a true statement. Certainly not in yeah. in the long term, i.e., forever. Um, and what else? Oh, there was the the guy who asked me. Um, if 
if people were using abortion as a form of contraception, that was pretty mm. interesting. Um, or when I tried to give a very nuanced answer on pornography, um, when somebody asked me if I thought that, that porn was bad and I talked about how it was a fairly broad form of media. So some porn was great, some I know, was bad. I, I Someone always say it like, it's like asking if, if the novel is good or bad. Like no one asks about any other genre of media. Um, anyway. Yeah. But I think maybe more so than questions, uh, I've gotten a whole bunch of really great emails from people who've either read the book or read media around the book. And um, sometimes the stories they share are really powerful. And I, I really hope that I do them justice in my responses to them. But I often hear stories from people who've been carrying around um, shame around their sex mm. lives or a sense that they were not adequate. Generally, given the story that I share in the book, these people are feeling shame or inadequacy because they aren't sexually active or they haven't had as much sex as they would like. And they talk about how reading the book or reading um, my work elsewhere has given them this sense of relief and the sense that they are okay as they are and that their sex life is not this defining quality for them. Well, I think it is a relief. And it's also just a relief to have these conversations out in the open. I wonder if you have a question or a, or a provocative prompt to encourage folks to discuss further on Twitter when they hear the podcast. Sure. What, I, what I'd really love to hear from people, so if they can at me on Twitter or I'll just like search your hashtag. The hashtag is I, YMY as in yes means yes. Excellent. I will be searching that hashtag. I'd really love to know um, which cultural expectations around sex impact your listeners most. So what are they feeling under most pressure to do or to not do? What are they rubbing up against? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great conversation. So use the hashtag YMY. You can also at one or both of us. I'm at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F. What are you on Twitter? Uh, Rachel Hills. At Rachel Hills. R-A-C-H-E-L-H-I-L-L-S. Straightforward. Yeah, very. All right. Are you ready to give some advice to somebody who's running up against some stuff? I will try. I, I I trust that you will you will do a fantastic job. Um, let me just. All right, I'll edit this little gap out. I have it now. Okay. Uh, so we, the question we have this week is from a listener named Maya, and she says, "I'm a 19 year old college student, and I was wondering if you might be able to help me out with some advice. I'm not dating, nor am I having sex. I've only had sex with one person, and it's now been over a year. I assume she means since." that she had sex mm -hmm. we weren't a couple but i was very comfortable with him i'm very shy and inexperienced and if i'm going to have sex it needs to be in a situation where i know i will be able to speak up for myself i don't think i'm comfortable with casual sex at this point and even if i were i wouldn't know how to begin to seek it out so it looks like i won't be having sex for some time i don't feel like i need it but sometimes it consumes my thoughts and for a few days i can barely think about anything else i'm in one of those periods right now i enjoy fantasizing but there's only so much it can do for me I've been masturbating frequently for years, but I live in a dorm and hardly have any privacy at all anymore, not even bathroom space. Mm. Do you have – that sounds like a terrible situation. Yeah, I know. Not even a bathroom stall. Do you have any advice for how I can deal with these feelings in a healthy way? What is a good way to work through sexual feelings without sex, with very limited masturbation, and without getting angry with myself for having these feelings? Thank you so much. Oh, <sighs> It's really tough, <laughs> that conundrum. I think 
the first thing I would say is I'm I'm so impressed by how self-aware you are, Maya, um, by by how much you understand around, about your own emotional and sexual needs. Um, it's clear that engaging with Jacqueline's work has done a lot for you, which is really really wonderful. Well, I'm sure I don't take all the credit, but <laughs> I I like to imagine Maya like filling out the worksheets in your book, and that's, that's <laughs> how she's figured all the stuff out. Either that, or you're just a very smart young lady. Um, in terms of how to deal with it, I feel like I want you to be able to carve out some space in, and some privacy in your life to be able to explore your sexual side because it's going to be really, really hard if you can't get any kind of outlet. Um, so if you can think, and Jacqueline, you might have some ideas on ways that Maya can find some privacy. I mean, I think um, that probably any way for you to pri- find privacy given the parameters you've described is going to involve some conversations with other people, right? Mm. So if you have roommates, you might need to become willing to talk with them about, hey, could we have an arrangement where you don't come in for a half an hour or, you know, you doesn't even you don't even have to say I want to masturbate in the room. You could say, "Hey, we never have any privacy." What if we had an exchange where I got in the room all to myself for two hours on Wednesday and you get it on Thursday? You don't have to make it about sex. Um, everybody just wants privacy some of the time. Which makes total sense. You're absolutely right on that. And it's interesting because if someone was in a relationship, um, even if it did involve sex, uh, which it probably would in that case, I think there'd be a lot of understanding about somebody's need to have a room to themselves for an yeah. hour or two. And if it's not... You know, if it's not your roommates, if you, I mean, some people don't have great relationships with their roommates, you know, mm. do you have a friend who you could just level with, right? Mm. Um, who might have some space or be able to f- help you figure out how to make some space. Also, I'm concerned about this bathroom situation. Yes. Why, yeah. Why are there no stalls in the bathroom? Um, I, I mean, assume I'm that there s- are. It might just be that other people are going in and out. So, so it doesn't even feel... if you're in your stall, like yeah. it's a bit unsexy. Yeah, I suppose it. Also, I mean, unless you have particular predilections, I think bathrooms are often unsexy. Yeah. Um, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, bathrooms are not the sexiest places. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, as, as someone who was single and semi-involuntarily celibate for quite some time, I, I do have sympathy for other parts of your situation as well, which is uh, this fact that to, at a certain point, fantasy doesn't really seem to cut it. So I wonder if there are other things that you can do to explore your sexuality in this time when you're single, such as once you've been able to find this kind of little snippet of private space for yourself, trying out sex toys or something like that. Or even if you felt emotionally comfortable with it or confident enough, you could consider engaging in hookups that weren't that didn't in the weren't you know quote unquote, didn't involve quote unquote sex or that worked within your own limits. Right. The other thing is, you know, maybe involving mutual fantasy would be more satisfying. So if you mm. were to find adult chat rooms, they're not that hard to find on the internet. Places mm-hmm. where you can have anonymous chat with other adults um, mm. and engage in a mutually constructed fantasy that might be able, even if you might not be able to physically stimulate yourself, um, you might be able to get more pleasure or satisfaction out of that interpersonal interaction than than just fantasizing by yourself. The other thing I'll say is just to validate your frustration. Like, it sounds like 
you're in a frustrating place and know that you're not alone. Lots of people go through it. I definitely have had long dry spells where I wanted to be having sex and didn't have anyone to have sex with. I didn't maybe have the privacy issues that you have, but Mm. um, people who have strong sexual urges and can't satisfy them are very common. You are having a very human experience and that doesn't make it more pleasant, but I guess I just want you to feel less alone with it. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And it it ties back to this idea of the sex myth as well, or at least myths around sex, that we're sold this idea that everybody is having sex, especially in college. But there are probably a lot of other sexual... There are definitely a lot of other sexually frustrated women, men, gender non-binary people out there in the same situation. Just a last thought. Some people find exercise burns off a little of that frustration. Um, I don't know what your relationship with your body and physical activity is, but if that's something that you might think about trying, going for like a really hard run or an amazing dance class or whatever movement kind of stuff feels good for you, um, it's not the same thing, but it could take some of the edge off. Uh, I th- Maya, I think that's all we have to help you. We're so- I wish you I could... I wish I could build you a little room of your own. Um, <laughs> yeah, very Virginia Woolf. A very, room of one's own. <laughs> yes, a sexy room of one's own. Um, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your work. I just found, I find it so useful, the research, the, the concrete work that you've done to, to so that I can say like, oh, you're not alone. Just read this book. It'll explain <laughs> it all to you. Um, so thank you so much. Um, where can people find you to follow your future work? Uh, you can find me at my website, which is www.rachelhills.net. And there are a whole bunch of other social networks there and a very cool mailing list where I send out, uh, occasional letters around feminism and writing and sexuality and all those other exciting kind of issues. And, um, yeah, I think that's probably the main place. And the book is called The Sex Myth and it's available where fine books are sold. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are you working on for the future? Is there anything you can give us information about? Um, I'm trying to understand, to find a way to talk about racism to my fellow white people that doesn't let them or us off the hook. Ooh. So you just really like to take surface approaches to topics. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> I like to pick easy topics that will make everybody love me. Yes, I can tell. That's that's your career path. That sounds mm-hmm. super interesting. I look forward to reading that as well. And folks can find me at Jacqueline F on Twitter, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F. Uh, you can also follow me there on Facebook, same handle. Uh, and you can find the show notes for this podcast and all of our previous shows at yesmeansyesshow.com. You can find all the rest of my work at jacquelinefriedman.com. You can also please email me questions, uh, advice questions for myself and a future guest to answer or ideas for future guests or topics you'd like us to talk about. Send me whatever your thoughts are on the podcast to YMY, as in yes means yes, at JacquelineFriedman.com. I love, love, love to hear from you, my listeners. And don't forget to talk on the hashtag YMY uh, about what are the cultural expectations around sex that you find yourself really struggling against or 
feeling like you don't measure up to what the ones that you sort of have friction with. Uh, we want to talk with you about that uh, this week on Twitter. Um, that's all we have for you this week. Until next time, we're wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.